What's up, guys? Brian Ratliff here. Just wanted to say thank you for tuning in to Keep the Faith Podcast. Grab your Bibles and let's dig in to the Word of God. The 1500s bear witness of one of the greatest revival periods of church history. It was a revival period of getting back to interpreting Scripture, back to the historical and grammatical method. And all that simply means is they would study Scripture and the context in which it was written, and they would understand the meaning of Scripture by the words found in the text. And throughout history, at least for several hundred years, and really actually more than that, since the influence of a guy by the name of Origen, people began to interpret Scripture allegorically. And while we do leave room for sometimes Scripture to be interpreted figuratively, we know that through the Protestant Reformation of the 1500s, it was a revival getting back to the literal, historical, grammatical approach to understanding God's Word. And it can really be accredited, ultimately, really, God moving in one man. Certainly this one man was not perfect. He was a man just like you and me and full of sin and contaminated by sin. But in, early in the 1500s and, and ultimately back in the 1400s, we see that a guy by the name of Martin Luther was on his journey way, on a pathway, and a raging storm came upon him and he committed his life to becoming a monk. And he hoped that by becoming a monk and studying Catholicism in a greater detail that he would ultimately find salvation. And so as he began to study, he began to realize that he did not find the salvation that he was searching for. And so he began to climb that ladder in Catholicism, and ultimately he was teaching and preparing for a lecture. And he was studying the book of Romans and, he, and the book of Galatians. And he comes across that verse that was a quotation of the book of Habakkuk, and it said, the just shall live by faith. And in the middle of that scene, we see that church history records that he experienced the rebirth. And he began to lead a reform to the Catholic Church, and he posts his 95 Theses. And, and his purpose in that was just to reform the church, not to start the Protestant Reformation, but what was birthed was the Protestant Reformation. And Martin Luther stood before that council, and he said, unless you can show me Scripture and give me clear logical reasoning, I will not recant my beliefs. And through the course of events, we realized that the Pope would ultimately call him literally a great pig is in our midst. And they excommunicated him from the Catholic Church. One historian writes this about Martin Luther. He became persuaded that the Roman Catholic system of his day was the great harlot of revelation. He acted on his convictions by bravely leaving the system. He, as Revelation says, came out of her, arguing on the basis of Revelation that the complete doom of Catholicism was soon at hand. Of course, this did not happen. 
While the corrupt system of his day may have reflected the spirit of Babylon, Babylon is much more wicked and perverse than anything in the 16th century or the 1500s. Yet we admire Luther for having the courage of his convictions. As great of a reformer Luther was, he made one of the greatest mistakes that many students of the Bible will make. They'll read their context into the Word of God. They commit what we call eisegesis, reading into Scripture what is not in Scripture. And so today, what we have to understand is that this chapter reveals to us that the system of Babylon is going to fall. So the title of my sermon is these words, The Fall of Babylon. The Fall of Babylon. We know this system that that arises up in in the Great Tribulation period is a system that is globalized. We understand that this system is going to be a worldwide, international, religious, political, and economic system. And we see that that when we try to insert Catholicism or insert other religious things that are popular in our day, we will make the same mistake that Luther made. So we need to not subtract from the Word of God and not add to it. We need to understand that this is just simply a worldwide system that will come to pass, that will be international all over all the world, and it will be great political and great spiritual. And this system will come to fall. I have two takeaway thoughts that I want you to leave with today because most of today's message is going to be uh, full of a lot of information about the future. But as we study scripture, we need to understand that we don't need to just fill our minds with theology. We need to understand that we need to live out that theology throughout our days. And so here's the first takeaway thought I'm going to give to you, and I'm going to give you the last one towards the end of the message where we get to really the, the crux of the application of this text. Here's the thought. As we're studying Revelation chapter 18, if I could summarize it and how we can live it out today, it's this. We can rejoice in an age of ungodliness because our God will bring justice. We can rejoice in an age of ungodliness because our God will bring justice. Our world has been crying out for justice of all these certain things. But ultimately, our world does not want justice. Our world wants vengeance. That's all it wants. It wants vengeance. It wants to take back what they thought they should have. But I want you to understand this, that ultimately our world should not desire justice or vengeance because the Bible says in Romans chapter 12 that God is the one who will bring vengeance to this world. And God is the one who will bring justice to this world. So the entire corrupt system of Babylon, it will be be, uh, under the judgment of God in the days to come. And I will dare to say that any politician, any nation, any leader, any group, any corporation that abuses the power that's been given to them, they will reap the judgment of God. And today, as we look at this passage, we can rejoice because we know that the corrupt politics of our day will one day be under the judgment of God. The the corrupt religious system of our day will one day be under the judgment of God. And so we can praise God knowing that this scene that John sees in the future in 95 AD is going to come to pass. Babylon will fall. Satan and his desire to have worldwide dominion over the earth is going to fall. So my key question I want to ask and answer today is this, what does the Bible say about the future of Babylon? Last week we kind of looked at the past and and how it tied into Revelation 17 and today we want to look at the future. We want to get in the the lens of, of God's prophecy lens and see what scripture has to say about the future fall of Babylon. And I want to zoom in and focus today, first of all, in verses 1 through 3. 
And here's the thought I want to share with you. The God of this world will condemn fallen Babylon. The God of this world will condemn fallen Babylon. Whether Satan desires to admit it or not, his system that he desires to have in this world has already fallen in the eyes of God. In fact, just as Scripture teaches us that we are already seated in heavenly places, I believe that Satan is already seated in unheavenly places even this hour. I believe that his system that he's going to devise up and drum up in this world, that, that it, it will be condemned by God. Look in verse number one. The Bible says that after what he, John saw in chapter 17, he sees another angel come down from heaven. And this angel, the Bible says, had great power. And the Bible says that, that when he came, the earth was, was, was lightened because of the brightness of the glory that the radiant beings of this angel shone in the world. And I would just dare to say that the reason why this angel had such a bright image coming off of him is because he was, this angel was in the presence of God. And whenever we get into the presence of God, we will shine the light of God in this world. But this angel cries out and he says and he declares that Babylon the Great is going to fall. And he says that this Babylon has become the habitation or dwelling place of demonic spirits or devils. And it's the, the hold of every foul spirit, unclean spirits. And it's the cage of every unclean and hateful bird. Imagine, imagine a very gloomy, dark, let's just picture in our minds a haunted mansion for the sake of this text. We have a haunted mansion that we're all going to go visit. And as we get to this mansion, we see it's gloomy, it's very dark, and, you know, the birds that are flying around are these crows, dark crows, sitting on the, the fences, sitting on the rooftop. And we think we see ghosts, but we know that they're either angels or demons. So as we think about a haunted mansion, the picture that this angel is declaring with a strong voice is this picture of the Antichrist and this great horror, this whole system of government and politics and religion. And it has become the place of Satan's dwelling place. The place of all of these demonic spirits have made their place there. Now, I do think it's interesting that some commentators are at debate about if this is going to be actual Rome or actual Babylon. But what we do know, it's, it's going to be a system that's like that. It's going to have dominion over all the world. And I would lean that this Babylon is going to be the capital city right there where ancient Babylon was. I think that it's going to all be rebuilt again. And it's going to be there, the capital place of Satan's empire on earth. But then the Bible says, it's interesting, it speaks about the nations of this world. And so, listen, we need to understand that we love America. But if America is alive and well in this time, America is going to be in bid with this system. We love this nation, but we understand that this nation, if it's alive during this time, it will be involved in this worldwide system and it will benefit from this worldwide system. So check it out now. It says, for all nations... All nations of that day, whatever it is. The Bible says they have drunk the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Now, obviously, this does not mean literal drunkenness, although Scripture clearly condemns that. It doesn't 
mean that. It's kind of a figurative language to say, and it speaks about this fornication. We pour this out of, of the single word out of the context. It means giving not sexual immorality, that is not being faithful to your spouse or having sex outside of marriage. And so we know that that's what it means specifically, but in the context, it's spiritual drunkenness and it's spiritual adultery against the true God of the Bible. And so here it says that the kings of the earth, that is all these rulers, they are it, it, literally, the, the, the terminology here, it, it means that they are in bed with this system. Because later on, we'll see that they benefit financially from it. And it says here, the merchants, they have waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. And here in these first three verses, we see that the God of this world will condemn fallen Babylon. In fact, he already has condemned it. And it will be destroyed. Now, let's look at verses 4 through 8. Secondly, today, about what the Bible says about the future of Babylon it is found in verses 4 and 8. The God of this world will warn believers to flee from Babylon. The God of this world will warn believers to flee from Babylon. In fact, there's two commands in Revelation chapter 18, and that's where we're going to draw application. The first one is from verse number 4, and the second one is from verse number 20. It says, come out of her, and then it says in verse 20, rejoice over her. So our command is separation and adoration. We can separate from this system and we give God glory that he's going to overcome this system. We can rejoice in the age of ungodliness because our God will bring justice. He will. Look at verse number four. The Bible says, come out of her, my people. He says, do not be partakers of her sins that you, were not see, that you do not receive the plagues that she will receive. The Bible says in verse number five that the sins have reached to heaven. Remember back in Genesis, in chapter 10, we read about the Tower of Babel. And they were, they were literally building this, what we would call a ziggurat pyramid up, reached the height of heaven. And there, in a sense, there's terminology here that, of course, John the Revelator knew about Genesis and what Moses wrote back then. And so we see that God is reminding him, I believe, of the picture of ancient Babylon, that just as ancient Babylon tried to build that high tower to try to worship themselves, in a sense, in their own system and say, hey, we don't need God anymore. We have our own gods. And so here it says, a similar fashion, that their sins have reached heaven. What a powerful word. And then the Bible says, this is, in fact, out of all of the verses of chapter 18, the one that troubles my mind the most is verse 6. Or excuse me, verse 5, where God says, He has remembered her iniquities. I'm reminded of what the scripture says that, that when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, he will take our sins and cast them as far as the east is from the west. He said in Micah that he will take our sins and cast them and throw them to the bottom of the ocean. And the Bible says that he will take them and remove them from his memory bank to remember them no more. But here the Bible says that he is going to remember their sins. We understand that God is omniscient. He knows everything and he never will learn anything. But the one thing that he deletes, I say this respectfully, from his memory banks is those who've come to faith in Christ all of their sins. He's forgotten them. He's removed them. But the Bible says that he will not forget this system's sins. And all of those who are partakers with this system. My friends, I know that we're not in this age just quite yet, but we see the spirit of this age alive and well today. And if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, your sins will not be forgotten. 
and thrown into the bottom of the ocean. So you need to come to faith before it's eternally too late. You need to believe that Jesus took the wrath of God on the cross so that you can experience the grace of God. You need to believe that Jesus rose victoriously from the grave to defeat death, hell, and the grave in order to live eternally with God in heaven. Verse number six, the Bible speaks about how, how this angel saying, hey, the, the, another angel that comes and he hears the voice, he, he says, let's reward her the way, in other words, she's going to reap what she sows, as Paul said. Give her double the portion that she deserves for all that she's done and the trouble that she's caused believers and the people of God. There's no need to seek vengeance when Satan attacks our church. There's no need to seek vengeance when unbelievers wreak havoc on believers because we know that God is the avenger and God will bring justice. But then verse number seven, the Bible says, how much she's glorified herself. That is the spirit of fallen humanity. We glorify self and we remove God out of the picture. Verse 7 that says this system of this great whore is glorified herself and lived in such a luxurious way. And it says, give her torment and give her sorrow. For as much torment she's get, been giving to those and to much sorrow she's been giving, reward her back those things, those same things. Then it says, for she said in her heart, this is, this is really the ultimate sin of the heart of man. That is the sin of pride. I struggle with this. You struggle with this. We all struggle with pride. It was pride that Lucifer struggled with back in heaven when he was one of God's most prized angelic beings, a cherubim. And he said, I want to be God. And we see that this system called Babylon says, I am, I sit a queen. In other words, I'm the ruler of this world. I'm no widow, and I will never see sorrow. Unfortunately, this chapter reveals to us that she will not just be a widow, and she will no longer be a throne queen, but she will experience sorrow. This system will, and all those with it. Then the Bible says, Therefore shall her plagues come in one day, death, mourning, and famine. All at once, death, of course, we don't need to elaborate on what that is. It's uh, no longer having life. Mourning is weeping, a time of grief, and famine is receiving a pestilence or plague or disease. And the Bible says, check it out now. It says, and she shall be utterly burned with fire. In other words, this whole system is going to be destroyed. Why? For strong. For strong. For strong is the Lord God who judges her. In fact, John chapter 3 and verse number 33 reads this way about the judgment of God. It says, He that believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he that believes not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So you are either under the grace and mercy of God, or you are under the wrath and judgment of God. And I submit to you, you don't want God's judgment. You do not want God's justice. Because if he gave us justice, we would all be sentenced guilty to eternity separated from him in the lake of fire. So the God of this world will condemn fallen Babylon, but the God of this world 
will warn believers to flee from Babylon. We know back in the book of Matthew that the Bible tells us in chapter 24 in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount of Olives that that many will flee when they see some of these things take place. And now just to give you kind of a time frame here, some scholars believe that chapter 17 happens in the first three and a half years of the tribulation period, and other scholars believe that chapter 18 happens in the last three and a half years. We can't be ultimately dogmatic about it, but it does seem to fit pretty well. Now that being said, let's look at verses 9 through 20. I find this section interesting because the first two sections and the last section is about what God will do to this world. But in this section here, verses 9 through 20, is all about the response of the people in the world when they see Babylon destroyed. And so I wrote down this to share with you. The people of this world will lament over fallen Babylon. The people of this world will lament over fallen Babylon. Now, we're not going to hit every single verse here. But what I do want to zoom in and focus on is the thought from verse number 9. It says, the kings of the earth. Then in verse number 15 and 11, it says, the merchants of the earth. And then later on, it speaks about the shipmasters or the sailors in verse number 17. And the Bible says that the kings are going to They're going to be involved in this whole system, living luxuriously with her. And they are going to bewail her. They're going to lament over her. They're going to weep over her. They're going to howl over her as they watch this place and literally maybe even this city Babylon burn. We know that this city is going to be, the at that time, if we understand it correctly, and it is going to be rebuilt and it is going to be an actual city, that this will be literally the centerpiece of false religion of that time. It will be the centerpiece for political power. It will be the centerpiece for economic power and religious power. And now they are watching it burn. Saying, the city of Babylon, that great city, has fallen. One hour, she's experienced the judgment of God. Satan Throughout all of history, is spinning the some six to ten thousand years, give or take maybe, of trying to take over this world and overthrow God. And in 60 minutes, talk about the 60 minutes show. This will be the real 60 minutes hour. The real 60 minutes show is when God destroys it all in less than one hour. Now, maybe that it's actual 60 minutes or not, but what we do know, there's coming a time and a short time when God is going to destroy this whole system. And then the Bible says in verse 11 that the merchants will weep and they will mourn because there's nobody left to buy their merchandise. One commentator said that the jewelry store is spoken of by the gold, silver, and precious stones and pearls. He says that the clothing store is mentioned by the fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet cloth. He said the furniture store is mentioned by the wood, the ivory, the, the, and the costly wood. He said the interior decorator shop is mentioned by the bronze and iron and marble. He said the perfumery store is mentioned by the cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, and frankincense. He said the food store is mentioned with wine, olive oil, flour, and wheat. He said, the animal marketplace is mentioned by the cattle, sheep, horses, and the carriages. And then he said, the slave market is mentioned by the bodies and souls of men. 
I do want to zoom in and focus on the last part of verse 13. It says, slaves and souls of men. Slavery has always been a part of humanity. It always has. It's part of the fallenness of man and the sinfulness of man. And one day, all of that will come to an end. But I will dare to say that, that I believe that, that the Holy Spirit is giving John the words here to remind us that these men and women of this time period that were treated like animals and taken to a marketplace and sold like property are not just like animals. They are souls of men made in the image of God. And so today, let me just share this with you, that no man, woman, boy, or girl who's made in the image of God deserves to be treated like merchandise. Nobody does. And God will put an end to all of that in the days to come. But these kings, these, these merchants, and then the Bible says that the shipmasters, in verse number 17, they are going to be crying and mourning because of their ships being out in the seas are not able to bring merchandise and, and make trade and make money anymore. So as our world approaches this one world system of government, as our world approaches this one world religious belief system, as our world approaches this one world economy, one day it will all crash and tumble and fall. And they will be declaring, alas, alas, the great city of Babylon has fallen, who is decked with linen and purple and scarlet and gold and precious stones and pearls. And then the Bible says that when they see the smoke, these, these sailors are going to be saying, what city is like unto this great city? I find it interesting that, that, that this place called Babylon is supposed to be Satan's high city, but it will not compare to the high city that God will call the new Jerusalem. Satan will have his heyday. Satan will have his time to do his will against God. But we know that God will overthrow in the end. The Bible says that these sailors will cast dust. In other words, they will, they will, they will be through a period of mourning throughout the Old Testament. We see that when they would take the dust or, or those types of things and ashes and put it on their head, it was a sign of mourning. And they will mourn and mourn and mourn. And it says again, in, in one hour is she made desolate. But then verse 20. I actually like this verse. It says, rejoice over her. Heaven, the apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. So here's our first takeaway thought. We can rejoice in an age of ungodliness because our God will bring justice. He will. So we can lift up our voices in adoration. We can lift up our songs in praise and worship. We can lift up our lives and worship our God because we know that he's in control. He's sovereign over all things and that the future is in his hands. But now let me draw your attention to the last section here, verses 21 through 24. What does the Bible say about the future of Babylon? Well, it, it says that, that the God of this world will condemn fallen Babylon. The God of this world will, will warn believers to flee from Babylon. It teaches us that the people of this world will lament over fallen Babylon. It will show their, where their real heart is and their heart 
will not lie with God. But then lastly and finally, the God of this world will destroy fallen Babylon. The God of this world will destroy fallen Babylon. The Bible says in verse number 21 that a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and cast it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence shall that great city Babylon be thrown down and shall be found no more at all. In one hour, it will be gone. So it gives this idea that a, a, a great stone or a millstone. I'm sure you know what a millstone is. In the ancient world, it's kind of like a big circle stone and it has a little hole right here in the middle. And they would use it in, the, in, in an ancient factory to use to press grain and grind grain. And those stones were heavy. You just couldn't pick it up. You'd take the world's strongest man to pick them up. And so the Bible says that, that, that this big old stone is going to be thrown into the sea. And a heavy stone, when it goes into the sea, you see a big splash and then it just you don't see the stone anymore. So the illustration is this. is just like you take a rock or a pebble or a big boulder and you throw it in the sea and there it ceases to exist in your eye. Babylon is like that stone and will no longer be present in the world. Then verse 22 says that we'll no longer hear the voices of the instruments or the voices of singers. All of that will be gone. There will be no more craftsmen. There will be no more factories that will build cars or houses or goods. The Bible says that all of that will be gone. It says there will be no more lights, candles, or fluorescent lights. It will no longer shine. There will be no more marriages and families. The bridegroom will not come and meet the bride on wedding day and at the marriage altar. There will be no more children given birth in this kingdom. There will be no more merchants who will sell because all of it is gone. I find it interesting that the word sorcery is the same where we get pharmacy from. And here it says that for by thy sorceries were all nations deceived. And then it says... In verse 24, that in her was found the blood of prophets and saints and of all that were slain upon the earth. So there will be a time in this tribulation period where that system, that, that world government, that world religion, and that world economic system, it will be against the people of God and it will torture and murder and martyr the people of God. And so as we think about all these things, yeah, I know we can rejoice in an age of ungodliness because our God will bring justice, but, but what does this all have to do with you and me? Well, now here's where the application begins. And so if you just bear with me for just a few moments here, I want to share with you a few thoughts that, that, that in our secular age, because today, let's face the facts, our age is, our, the time that we're living in is becoming less religious and less religious and less religious. Our culture is concerning a little about any type of religious system of beliefs. And so we become more secular in our approach to the world. But I want you to understand this, that, that just because we think we're secular doesn't mean we, we do not worship gods. And so the gods of a secular age are threefold, success, wealth, and pleasure. That is the gods of the age in which we're living. The ancient world would call it prosperity. The ancient world would call it materialism. The ancient world would call it hedonism. That is, the God of success, the God of wealth, and the God of pleasure. Listen to this. Here's what I wrote down about prosperity or the God of success. When we live for success, 
We have no time for God and forget him. Think about that. When we live for success, we have no time for God and we forget about him. And materialism or the God of wealth. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with success in itself. But if success has become the purpose by in which you exist, it has become your God. There's nothing wrong with wealth or having money in the bank. In fact, some people are gifted by God to have and accumulate a lot of wealth. And some people are just not given that because maybe they can't handle that. But wealth in of itself is not bad. But when we live for making wealth and making money, it has become our God. And so listen to this. When we live for wealth, we have no need for God and don't seek him. Now, pleasure is not sinful in of itself. God created us with the desires to have pleasure. But the ancient word or the word hedonism is a, is a fancy word for the God of pleasure. Here's what I thought I want to share with you. When we live for pleasure, we have no satisfaction in God and don't want him. So as we read Revelation chapter 18, as we think about this future age to come, we need to come out from the worldly system of our day. And we need to rejoice over the fact that God is going to bring justice and vengeance to this system in which we're living in. And so we need to reject the gods of success. We need to reject the gods of wealth. And we need to reject the gods of pleasure because Christ is the greatest treasure. Reject the gods of success, wealth, and pleasure because Christ is the greatest treasure. Remember what Jesus said? Do you remember what he said? In Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Here's how you know if success or wealth or pleasure is your God. Let's say this bottle of water is success for me. If I remove this bottle of water out of my life and I cannot, and I cannot no, no longer live and I have no purpose, success has become my God. If this wallet right here, which has all these cards, these debit cards and credit cards that we use. If all the money and possessions and materials that we own right now are all vanished away and deleted from existence and we no longer can live, those possessions and materials and wealth have become your God. And if pleasure, the pleasures, I'll pick on myself right now. If Chipotle ceased to exist... <laughs> Could I continue living my life? I would like to say I could. But I say that to just simply say this, that whatever you find pleasure in, if it's removed out of your life, can you keep on living? If you can, chances are it's not a God. But if you can't, chances are it is your God. On October 29th, 1929, Black Tuesday hit Wall Street as investors traded some 16 million shares on the New York Stock Exchange in a single day. Billions of dollars were lost, wiping out thousands of investors. This unforeseen event led to the Great Depression, which was a worldwide economic downturn that began in 1921 and, excuse me, 1929 and lasted until about 1939. It was the longest and most severe depression ever experienced by the industrialized Western world, sparking fundamental changes in economic institutions, 
macroeconomic policy, and economic theory. Although it originated in the United States, the Great Depression caused drastic declines in output, severe unemployment, and acute deflation in almost every country of the known world. Its social and cultural effects were no less staggering, especially in the United States, where the Great Depression represented the harshest adversity faced by Americans since the Civil War. If you think the stock market crash of 1929 was bad, you have not seen anything until the day Babylon falls. We can rejoice in an age of ungodliness because our God will bring justice. What's up, guys? Brian here again. Just wanted to say thanks again for tuning in to today's episode. You can check out this full message at PastorBrianRalph.com or Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts. Keep the Faith is a ministry of Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. If you're free one Sunday or Wednesday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. Until next time, God bless. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. Keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith.